The Electronic Intifada. Intifada Electronic. Intifada Electronica. This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada Podcast. Today, we speak with two graduate students at UCLA who are organizing with Students for Justice in Palestine and talk about the growth of divestment campaigns on campuses, as well as efforts by Israel lobby groups to suppress such organizing. But first, we go to Charlotte Silver, who recently spoke with Charlotte Cates, international coordinator with Semidun Palestinian Prisoners Solidarity Network. Cates was denied entry on August 15th by Israel into the West Bank when she attempted to cross from Jordan. Cates was traveling to accompany a delegation of European parliamentarians and lawyers in support of Bilal Kayed, a hunger-striking Palestinian prisoner who, after refusing food for 71 days, announced on Wednesday he was suspending his hunger strike. Cates said that when she arrived at the final passport check, the Israeli security guard knew that she worked for a website for Palestinian political prisoners. Kate says she was also interrogated about her involvement with the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement and Israeli Apartheid Week. Earlier this month, Israel announced it was forming a task force to root out and deport BDS activists. And now here's Charlotte Silver with Charlotte Cates. Why don't you start by telling me where you are now and and then we'll we'll get into what happened. Okay, sure. Well, um, right now I'm in uh, Brussels where I'm... Uh doing some organizing work with uh, Samadun Palestinian Prisoner Solidarity Network. And I uh, came back here after um, getting denied access to Palestine, denied entry at the bridge from Jordan last week. Okay, and so um, what happened when you, when you attempted to enter the West Bank? Sure, well, um, along with a number of other people, including tourists from various countries, and also um, a number of Palestinians, both Palestinians living in Palestine and also Palestinians living internationally, um, both folks carrying, uh, you know, Palestinian passports and also folks carrying international passports. Uh, I attempted to enter the West Bank via the bridge from Jordan, the King Hussein Bridge. Um, and going through the bridge is definitely, um, it, it's a it's a very specific experience. And in general, the bridge is where a large number of Palestinians cross to enter. Um, it, it's also, I mean, if you have a Palestinian ID card, you're not allowed to enter via the airport, um, Ben Gurion Airport, unless you have a special permit. So this, the bridge is where the the vast majority of Palestinians who exit the country re-enter the country. And I I mean, to clarify, Palestinians living in the West Bank for Palestinians uh, who are Jerusalemites or Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship, of course, the situation is different. But I'm speaking here about specifically Palestinians living in the West Bank. Um, So the, the, the entrance, when you're crossing via the bridge, it's very crowded. And it's there's not a lot of um, attempts to made to sort of ease the situation for people who are crossing. Instead, uh, there's a, a lot of waiting, a lot of being ordered around and being forced to stand in one line after another and go through one passport check after another and one security check after another. Um, and this is again 
not because the bridge is aimed sort of at the tourist population or even at internationals coming to Palestine, but as part of the sort of framework of control and security that is set up um, to repress Palestinians. Um, so anyway, I mean, you know, we went through, of course, multiple lines, multiple passport checks um, until going to the main passport control, which is sort of the the first passport control inside the building. There are several passport controls outside the building as well. Um, and, you know, of course I have no idea what the uh, border patrol person was seeing on his screen when he was looking at my passport. That's not, of course, something that I have access to. I mean, I know that he asked me why I had Lebanese stamps in my passport, but I don't know if that's what drew his attention to me or something else that he might have seen. Um, and of course he told me to, and I, he asked why I was traveling. And I said that I was, I did say that I was accompanying um, several European parliamentarians who were coming for a series of meetings over the next couple of days in the West Bank in Israel, which is absolutely factually correct. Um, of course, the delegation that I was accompanying or intending to accompany was a delegation of parliamentarians and lawyers from Greece, Iceland, and Ireland who were coming to show solidarity and meet with lawyers and human rights activists regarding the case of Bilal Qayyid, currently on hunger strike for 69 days, and other Palestinian political prisoners. Um, so he, you know, told me to stand aside, which is the same situation, of course, that was happening with a number of other individuals as well. There was a growing crowd of people in the back area um, of sort of this main room where, and the vast majority of them, of course, being Palestinians whose passports were being held, who were be being put aside, who were being told to wait and to stand aside for further questioning. Um, this is sort of the beginning of the process of my uh, failed attempt to enter Palestine. Were other people in the delegation, were they also denied entry? No. In fact, the other members of the delegation were able to enter with, uh, without a lot of questioning. Um, they all entered the previous day on Sunday the 14th through the airport, uh, through Ben Gurion Airport. Um, now, one thing about the other members of the delegation is that most of them were sitting members of parliaments in their countries. Um, one of them is the, the former minister of the interior of Iceland and a current member of parliament, um, Ogmundor Jonasson. Another is uh, Paul Gavin, a member of the Irish Senate. Another one is Fra McCann, a member of the Legislative Assembly in, north, in the north of Ireland. And the fourth was uh, Zoe, Constant, uh, Zoe Constantopoulou, who is a, the former president of the Greek parliament and currently a human rights lawyer. So the fact is that the other members of the delegation all had a sort of international status that would make it difficult to simply label them as an activist and you know hold them in the airport overnight and send them back and deport them. Um, so my participation in organizing and coordinating the delegation is, I do not necessarily think 
that they were actually questioned a great deal when they were entering. Um, but again, these were all people with more to a, sort of a, a prominent international status outside the question of Palestine and Palestinian rights activism. Um, during your interrogation, did Israel indicate that they um, had information about you that you didn't uh, provide yourself? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't really provide a great deal of information at all. Um, during my interrogation, I was asked about my husband because I'm married to a Palestinian, and clearly they already knew this information. Well, they said, what about the website that you maintain in relation to Palestinian prisoners? Okay. So it, it was pretty obvious what they were asking about. And they also, and then they did ask me, um, is there an organization that you regularly speak on behalf of in relation to Palestinian prisoners? What is your role with Samidun? I'm uh, the international coordinator for Samidun Palestinian Prisoner Solidarity Network. And of course, we work to, with um, Samadun chapters and independent activists and organizations around the world to raise awareness, build organizing and action um, to free Palestinian political prisoners and support the struggle of Palestinian political prisoners for liberation for the prisoners and liberation of Palestine. Um, they were... They asked me, yeah, what organization do you regularly speak on behalf of regarding Palestinian prisoners? Mm. So it was um, pretty obvious that, and they asked me, are you here to do anything about Bilal Qayyad? Wow. Okay. So it was very apparent that they, and, and that wasn't, of course, anything that I had volunteered to them. They asked me about the time that I had spent in Lebanon. Now, of course, my passport does have Lebanese entry stamps, which does in many cases, um, spark a great deal of attention from Israeli border officials. Um, in fact, any travel to Arab countries can do so, as I saw from other people who were in the same situation, going, um, being pulled aside and uh, being either denied entry or delayed and interrogated for a number of hours. Um, but during that time, um, I mean, I was, I had, this delegation came up as an urgent matter because, of course, the situation of Bilal Qayyad on hunger strike. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, some folks actually choose to renew their passports before attempting to travel to Palestine just so that they're not going with Arab stamps in their passport um, because just like, because Arab stamps are one of the things that are regularly singled out um, by the Israeli state in order to deny people entry or to highlight people for interrogation. And of course, this has a much bigger impact on Arabs holding various passports than it does on anyone else generally. Um, but so they asked me repeatedly uh, where I lived in Lebanon, who I stayed with in Lebanon. They asked me for lists of names of all of the people that I know in Lebanon. Um, they asked me for lists of names of all the people that I know in Palestine, and they would hand me pieces of paper and say that I should write this information. And of course, I mean, I'm not going to write lists of names of all the people that I know in Lebanon or Palestine. I'm not, I'm pretty sure that most internationals, they ask these questions to also refuse to answer these kinds of questions. But it's definitely an attempt to sort of establish intimidation 
and declare that you're being uncooperative. So therefore, you're going to be denied entry. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, because this was also what was said, because again, I refused to write up lists of names of people. And because I refused to uh, log them into my email account so that they could read the messages exchanged between me and other members of the delegation. Um, um, and yes. And how long have you been traveling to um, the West Bank and Israel and Palestine? Well, it's actually been some time since I've been to Palestine. Um, I was, it's been a number of years in my case. I was in Palestine in 2000, in the West Bank and in 48 and in Jerusalem in 2007. And then I was in Gaza in 2012. And of course, when we entered Gaza, it was via Egypt mm-hmm. um, at the time as part of a Canadian delegation. Um, so it's, n- and it's not that I, I haven't been to Palestine a lot. Um, and one of the reasons is because you know, there was a great deal of concern about denial of entry and because I was doing sort of different kinds of work. And of course, I was also spending a great deal of time in Lebanon, which is uh, not something that it, it you cannot travel to Lebanon if you have Israeli stamps on your passport. Mm-hmm. So this is also not conducive to frequent travel to Palestine. Um, so when they you know, knew who I was and had looked up all this information and knew about Samadun and asked me, oh, do you, uh, what do you, where do you speak about boycott, about, uh, about the BDS? Are you involved in the BDS? Is this an organization you work with? And I clarified, well, BDS isn't an organization. You know, the, the, the person, the interrogator said, fine, it's a movement, whatever. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So clearly she had heard the same answer from a number of other people who had been asked similar questions before. Um, they were very interested in involvement in boycott activities, involvement in Israeli apartheid week. This was something that was brought up time and time again um, and clearly you know, goes in relation to Israeli state policy that's been expressed regarding escalating the exclusion of boycott activists. Um, that's really interesting. Um, so, you know, so maybe you haven't, this isn't necessarily a, a shift from your experience since you haven't been going regularly. Um, but, you know, there was the news item, uh, I think it was last month that Israel is Mm -hmm. establishing a task force to deport, um, activists from the country who are working for BDS. Um, but they've also always had this policy of kind of arbitrarily preventing suspected activists from entry. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from what you've witnessed, you know, you've been observing the situation for quite some time. Do you think that you're seeing something different um, now? Well, I mean, I want to say that first, the targeting of activists and international activists, it, um, it pales in comparison to the constant targeting of Palestinians, including Palestinians holding international passports. Like the vast majority of people that were pulled aside at the bridge, I was only at the bridge for one day, and yet I talked to so many people and heard so many stories um, of people being denied entry, of people being delayed entry, 
of people um, being given permits to access um, the West Bank only and therefore being denied access to Jerusalem um, and being singled out specifically for being Palestinian, holding international passports and seeking to access their own land, their own homeland. And so the targeting of, of activists and the exclusion of activists is like a, a small sliver of this overall policy of depriving Palestinians of access to their land, you know, co coming, of course, hand in hand with the denial of the right of return to Palestinians. So, so it's not, it's a policy of denying Palestinians access to the land and concomitant to that, denying international activists to seek to support Palestinians um, as well. Now, it does seem to be on the international activist level um, increasing a bit in intensity. Um, there's an increase, and also um, perhaps even also on the level of Palestinians who were born in other countries and are carrying international passports um, being immediately pulled aside and excluded, whether at the bridge or in the airport. Um, I have heard personally so many reports of this happening, uh, particularly in the past year or year and a half, that it does really seem to indicate an intensified policy of exclusion, of attempting to create even more isolation of Palestinians by denying both Palestinians themselves and also um, supporters of Palestinians, the ability to uh, engage in communications face to face, the ability to see for oneself, um, the ability to uh, build, you know, person to person relationships. Um, there's pretty clearly a very high level of intense scrutiny being placed on internationals entering Palestine. I mean, just in the, again, this one day that I was at the bridge, I was there for many hours, but it was one day, one, one day, um, I saw internationals who were not activists and who were not organizers, but who were coming to do things like participate in teaching programs in the West Bank, or who were coming to study Arabic in Nablus, or who had simply uh, spent time in Jordan studying Arabic and had booked a ticket back home from Tel Aviv because it was cheaper and were planning to stay only a day to internationals who were visibly Muslim or carried an Arab or South Asian name who were pulled aside and either denied entry, given a limited access permit or delayed and interrogated for hours on end, um, seeking out if they were activists or if they were not activists being questioned, being given lists of names of Palestine solidarity organizations in the countries that they came from and asked if they had any involvement with this large list of organizations. So, and, and these were people who were not activists, but yet who simply by traveling to an Arab country or by having an Arab or Muslim um, religious, ethnic, or cultural background were targeted and pulled aside and repeatedly questioned and at times denied entry, again, just on one day uh, for, the, for these reasons and with this kind of pretext. And that's pretty much 
inconceivable without a distinct pattern and policy of preferring to deny access to everyone or to large numbers of people in order to prevent allowing access to any Palestine solidarity activists. Mm -hmm. um, okay, I wanted to just uh, shift a little bit to talk about um, the hunger strikes that are happening. Um, there's such a dearth of information in the media about it. Um, and Sami Dune is obviously one of the most consistent, reliable sources. Um, do you mind to talk a little bit about how you're able to cover the prisoner issue as an international organization? Sure. I mean, the first thing that we have to prioritize as an international organization seeking to raise awareness and build attention and solidarity for the prisoners who are leading this struggle is um, is bringing the information and the experiences that are being shared by prisoners and their families into an international context. So this involves a lot of translating articles from Arabic or getting phone calls from people that are uh, that are family members of prisoners that are hearing direct information right away and trying to bring that to an international audience because, of course, the mainstream media doesn't talk about Palestinian prisoners. And when it does talk about Palestinian prisoners, it's to create a false narrative that labels Palestinian prisoners as terrorists and something to be concerned about rather than as political prisoners and uh, freedom fighters who are struggling for freedom and need to be supported. So it's... Um, there's so much information that comes out on a daily basis in the Palestinian context about prisoners. And so much of it just never sort of breaks the translation barrier into English or French or German or Italian. And that's one of the things that Samadun works on doing is kind of breaking that information barrier that exists. And of course, we're not mainstream media at all. We're an activist network. Um, but we think that it's very important for this information to be available, for people to get to know who the prisoners are, their stories and their struggles, and to you know highlight their voices and the voices of their families um, and the people and, and their organizations and their comrades and the people that are are engaging in the struggle on the front lines. Um, I know Electronic Intifada um, provides great coverage of the of the prisoner struggle, but of course, attempting to get this issue into mainstream media is always a challenge. We're just starting to see mainstream media coverage really about Bilal Qayyad's hunger strike. And, you know, he's on his 69th day of hunger strike and it's just not acceptable that Palestinian prisoners need to be nearly on their deathbeds um, before international media governments and mainstream organizations like the United Nations or Amnesty International start to pay attention to these cases. That was Charlotte Silver interviewing activist Charlotte Cates. For more on the story, visit electronicintifada.net. Coming up next, we look at the current state of student Palestine solidarity organizing on U.S. campuses. Stay tuned.
You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Visit us online at electronicintifada.net or follow us on Twitter at Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. Intifada Intifada Electronica. Electronic Intifada. Today, we're taking a look at the U.S.-based student movement in solidarity with Palestine. Across the country, students are gearing up for another academic year and another season of campaigning for Palestinian rights, including taking part in the global boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. But how are students organizing amidst a growing campaign of free speech attacks, threats, and misinformation waged by well-funded Israel lobby groups on and off campus? Joining us to talk about how student activists are organizing and growing the solidarity movement are two members of Students for Justice in Palestine, both graduate students at UCLA, Rahim Kurwa and Omar Zaza. Rahim is a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology, and Omar is a PhD student in the Department of Comparative Literature. They're also a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement. Together, Omar and Rahim recently co-authored a comprehensive essay on Jadalia.com, Resolving to Divest, the History of SJP at UCLA's Divestment Campaign. Thank you both for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank Uh, you. Let's begin by having you uh, lay out the state of SJP organizing on college campuses and where the divestment movement specifically has had its most significant growth. Uh, Omar, do you want to start? Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, uh, well, specifically, you know, we're working within the context of the University of California, the, uh, the UC system. And so what we've seen over the years is a steady increase in um, basically students um, organizing, you know, for Palestine and particularly uh, by bringing up basically resolutions on their respective campuses to call for, for divestment. Um, from, you know, companies that are complicit in, you know, the occupation of the uh, Palestinian territories and also um, at times, you know, weapons manufacturers um, that produce the weapons that are used in offenses, um, offenses like uh, Protective Edge, which we saw in 2014. Uh, so basically, you know, over the years, we've seen a steady increase in the number of both, you know, individual UC campuses passing divestment resolutions, you know, at the undergraduate student level, um, as well as uh, UCSA, the uh, University of California Students Association, I believe is that acronym, which is the, basically as far as the UC goes, it's the largest um, body representing the voice of student government, right, um, within the university system, the UC system. And they also, you know, we were able to pass a resolution calling similarly, calling for similar forms, excuse me, of divestment at that level in February 2015. So we've reached a point where, you know, the vast majority of UC systems have passed these resolutions. And so there's clearly a growing consensus that, you know, the time has come to pull investments from companies that are um, profiting off of, you know, both the occupation and the oppression of the Palestinian people. And um, it's reflected both by, you know, the number of universities that have passed these resolutions, as well as just, you know, the general shift in um, public opinion that we're seeing in the, the growing body of student organizing that's been building around this cause for, for many years now. Raheem, do you want to add to that? And just expanding from the state of California, I think over the past year, just in actually just in 2016 alone, 
We've had over a dozen campuses around the country pass some form of divestment resolution or other type of um, boycott or divestment campaign. So it really shows how much energy and momentum there is, not just here in California, but also all the way in New York um, and all the way through the states in between. In the essay, uh, which documents the strategies that organizers employed during uh, specifically the, the divestment campaigns at UCLA, you both point out that when the second time that the divestment vote came up in 2014, which, which passed, uh, there was, quote, growing public interest in the issue from students across campus who had little formal contact or membership in SJP. In other words, once the debate had been brought to the forefront of campus, a much larger subset of the student body became invested in it. Uh, Raheem, can you talk specifically about why divestment campaigns are such an important part of SJP organizing and, and what divestment at UCLA did invisibly alongside the visible aspects? Um, that's true. Uh, th that dynamic that you highlight is a really important one, and I think it really goes to show the importance of campaign-type organizing on campuses. Um, before we the question of divestment came to the front of the public debate, it was very hard to um, catch the attention of students and make them think about this issue. It's very easy to ignore um, an issue that you might even be persuaded to agree on if there's no sense of urgency. Um, and once divestment came to the fore and we began a process of debating it with various types of bills over a couple of years, that became the front page news on in the campus paper. That became what people were talking about um, in their dining halls. That became the, the conversation on campus. And that itself was what prompted so many students to agree with our point of view, to educate their peers. Students who we didn't even know started doing the work of educating and persuading and organizing that we typically as SJP think is, you know, have generally been doing on our own. And so it was almost like lighting this fire on campus that really spread, um, you know, all around. And, and we saw some really amazing displays of that at different points of time when students who, none of the main organizers that I haven't met before were making really amazing speeches in favor of divestment or even producing videos on YouTube persuading their fellow students to support divestment. It really showed at various points in time just how much awareness and education was spreading because there was an actual point of time for a debate and, and because it was brought to the fore for some kind of public consideration. And Omar, um, what are some of the strategies uh, that UCLA employed that you've been discussing with other student activist groups around the country um, who can, you know, perhaps learn from, from uh, you know, the, the, the gains that you made and, and the decisions you made in the process of divestment? Well, I mean, there were so many strategies that we used, and some of it also, you know, you mentioned that it passed, you know, that our resolution passed the second time that it came up, right, which we also talk about in the article. So some of the things that we did the second time around was kind of learning from the first, uh, from the first attempt. But I think uh, one of the things that really worked in our favor, especially the second time around, was that, um, you know, when you're when you're working for divestment or when you're working, you know, um, on in organizing around Palestine more broadly, a lot of what you come up against is these sort of intense misconceptions about what that means, what that entails. So, um, especially the second time around, what, you know, uh, we in SJP tried to do was to be 
one hand, very, very transparent about everything, right? So, uh, for example, we, you know, held a town hall for, you know, you know, students from UCLA to come out to see, you know, what it was that we were actually going to bring to the undergraduate student government in a few weeks, right? We projected a skeleton resolution. Um, we took people's feedback. You know, it was a pretty in-depth meeting, but I think that that really went a long way as far as, you know, being a clear display of transparency and showing that, you know, when you break it down to its core, what is this thing that we're doing? What is it that we're asking for? It's not really that radical. It's actually very, the, the most basic thing, right? It's, um, it's a resolution that's grounded in concepts of, you know, um, basic human rights, that's grounded in concepts of, you know, um, no population, you know, um, have, you know, needing to live under occupation and, you know, state-sanctioned discrimination and oppression, basically, right? Which, when you reduce it to its fundamental core, is basically impossible to argue against, right? So, especially for the second time around, that was one of the strategies that, you know, we found to be really helpful. Um, It was also, you know, a lot of outreach, not only to the general campus community, but also to, you know, other student um, activist organizations, letting them know that, you know, this is coming, um, you know, uh, this is this is the particular struggle we're talking about. You know, um, we if there's any way that you can be in support, we would really appreciate it. But we're also, you know, talking about something that, even though um, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially now, about the language of you know solidarity and coming together, and it's it's always been that way, right? The decades of you know Palestine activism um, uh, throughout through the U.S. basically, it's always been. And this element of, you know, organizations, cross-coalition organization, people coming together, right? So that was also a very um, crucial aspect to it because it was really with the support of so many other student activist organizations that we were, you know, that the, um, basically, the uh, the sheer support for what we were um, bringing forward was really able to, um, you know, to be manifest. And I think when you bring a resolution and you see that there's over, you know, it's, there's so many organizations that are also endorsing it. So many organizations are representing so many different causes. It shows that there's something that's somewhat connectable, it's somewhat relatable, right? Um, so I think all of those things were really crucial in making the difference. And I'm sure you know Raheem can add if there's some things that I've overlooked. Because like I said, there's so many so many things that went into it, right? Sure. I mean, looking back, I think we all thought that divestment was impossible in the beginning. Um, you know, I remember very well, like, the summer meetings we would have where we would be thinking about what it would take to, to run a divestment campaign that had any hope of success. And we we were very certain that that we did not have the political power and the, you know, student government votes on our side at that time. But I think one of the real lessons that I learned was that, you know, you make the road by walking. Um, organizing for something that even at the time seemed pretty much impossible but that process of organizing actually turned it from being impossible to possible to probable. Um, and I think it's, it can be easy for young students to look at campaigns that have already happened and been successful and think, well, we don't have the same conditions that they had when their resolution passed. But it's important to realize that the conditions that our campus had when our resolution passed were a product of the organizing that happened um, with the faith that something like this was possible at a much earlier stage when the conditions were much, much worse. Um, and I think that's an, important, that's an important way of looking at things because um, not only should that be an important, you know, sort of lesson or something to keep in mind for other students and other campuses that have yet to do divestment, 
but it also helps us think about how we should be taking the next steps. You know, one of the other main things about divestment is it's completely changed the political questions in front of us as student organizers in the University of California. Now the question is, how do we actually enforce these democratic student votes upon a very undemocratic political body that actually administers and runs university? That kind of a question would, would never even be on the agenda for students prior to the divestment campaigns that have happened in the UC. And so even though it's a tough question, and even though the political circumstances right now make that seem very difficult, um, we can take heart in thinking that this is the very early stages of that and that through our organizing work, we can create the conditions in which that type of change and progress actually turns out to be possible and maybe even happen. We're speaking with Rahim Kurwa and Omar Zaza. They're both students, grad students at the University of California at Los Angeles. Uh, in that same vein, last week, Linda Wertheimer wrote an article for the New York Times, which was supposedly a deep look inside the, you know, quote unquote, division between SJP and pro-Israel groups on campus. The, the article was maybe what one could expect from the New York Times coverage of SJP activism in the past. Uh, and we could spend an entirely separate podcast talking about the problematic framing of, of this article alone. But in the article, the Times quoted Mark Udoff, of course, the former president of the University of California system, who's now the head of uh, a group called the Academic Engagement Network, which is a staunchly pro-Israel association of academics across, I think, more than 100 universities. Um, they're trying to, to stop and fight the, the boycott movement. And Udoff said, quote, I don't want to see BDS become stronger because 20 years from now, these students will be judges, heads of Congress. We have to respond now to maintain the historical relationship with Israel, end quote. What's both of your thoughts on, on this panicked response by Udoff and his colleagues to the growth of the BDS movement, especially on UC campuses, but, uh, you know, definitely across the country, from your vantage point as grad students? Well, um, I, I think that um, in many ways it's sort of uh, more of the same, you know, um, basically it's this there's, I mean, every time that there's, you know, some attempt to sort of counter what is, you know, undeniably a really growing and in many ways kind of a sweeping consensus, right, that um, it's it's long past time to end the oppression of the Palestinian people. Anytime, you know, when that, as that becomes manifest, there's always this kind of reaction and this backlash and this almost kind of, and it's always framed in these kind of panicked ways, like we need to stop this, we need to stamp this out. Of course, you know, um, uh, as as uh, your question sort of implied too, like we're it's not exactly a level playing field, right? We're dealing with you know um, very prominent officials um, across all spheres, right? Um, from the educational to the political and beyond. So I mean, I think that especially you know as somebody who's been doing this for several years now, uh, at this point, whenever some new group you know or whoever the individual is declares it's time to stamp this out, you know, it's just more of the same because you become so used to various forms of, you know, denouncements of BDS and declarations that, you know, there's going to be some new campaign to try and step it up, right? Um, but I also think it's it's more of the same in a different direction, which is that, you know, when Udall fell the position at the UC, right, we saw um, some of us, like for me, for example, I came in a little bit after the, the first campus, you know, the, the 2012, I believe, campus climate reports came out, which were very 
um, critical of, you know, Palestine activism and SJP work. And those ended up ultimately being effectively discredited later on because of very, very intense organizing, like sort of denouncing it, right? But um, so in that sense, you know, you see from that position to the current one he's holding now, um, it's really not a surprise to hear that statement. And as far as, you know, what to expect, um, I'm really not sure, but I think that so far what we've been seeing is that, you know, anytime there's been something, some kind of a declaration of an attempt to um, try to counter Palestine work, right, whether it's from someone like Udoff, whether it's something related like we saw a few months ago with the UC regents, you know, uh, considering a statement that at an early point in time directly equated, you know, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, we can be sure that, you know, because of the fact that, um, there's such a growing body of people who are invested in the idea that, you know, it's time to end the oppression that the Palestinian people are facing. Um, but there's going to be a very strong counter reaction and that ultimately we can have some, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't put in work. Of course you put in work, but you're also confident in the fact that at this point, you know, as it's, as it has happened before, um, it's not going to go unchallenged, which I think is reassuring. And one of the few reassuring things that you see as you've been doing this type of these types of activities more and more. I don't know if Raheem uh, would like to add something to that. I mean, I think there's something there's something very true to what Yudoff is saying is that the students on the university campus are eventually going to be members of the public, you know, and members of society in various other capacities after they graduate, and the rapidly shifting politics around Israel-Palestine on campuses is something that we should really take heart in because people now realize that it doesn't make any sense to claim that you're progressive or that you care about basic principles of equality and human rights and things like this if you can't apply those principles to the question of Palestine and if you can't support Palestinian human rights and, and a freedom struggle that has gone on for you know decades and decades now. Um, it's just that when Yudaf, by the time Yudaf is sort of realized what's going on on campuses, it's sort of too late, you know. Um, students have, have already, you know, the students who are going to be these future leaders and so on have already been making those connections and conclusions for years prior to him sort of waking up and sounding the alarm. Um, and I also think that there's something very important about divestment itself as a training or practice um, for future organizing work. And if you think about it, like divestment is about learning how to teach your peers, learning how to educate them, learning how to persuade or engage people who either don't have all the information in front of them or who might not be fully already on your side and who you can engage and persuade in some way. Divestment is about learning how to talk to your student government, right? All of these things are a microcosm of the political process at the local, state, and national level. And so the more practice that students have, um, learning how to do divestment work on their campuses, the more prepared our community will be to stand up and, you know, work against anti-BDS legislation in our state, you know, state governments, or the more prepared we would be to ask members of Congress to sign on to um, campaigns to protect Palestinian children um, in the occupied territories. The more prepared we'll be to do ad advocacy and organizing work inside the Democratic Party to make it more progressive on Palestine as well. So I think that divestment is a really, really healthy avenue and type of work that we can do, not just for the political campaign itself and, and the outcomes and actual moving the money, but also for a set of skills that we can learn and that we can then put into practice 
throughout the rest of our adult activist careers. Well, finally, uh, what are the next steps for student organizing, especially this coming academic year? Uh, what are where are SJP campaigners putting their energy uh, right now? Well, I think we've seen, um, you know, at the UC system, we've had a year that has gone on before us where there was this dark cloud hanging over our heads about what the UC regents were going to do in terms of, you know, what Omar mentioned that. Um, resolution that potentially was going to equate our principled activism in support of Palestinian liberation with some form of bigotry or racism. And now that that has passed us and was resolved in a relatively successful way for our work, um, I think we can now turn to back to the organizing work that is our staple, our bread and butter. And I think for us returning to a focus on educating, persuading, and mobilizing the everyday students who we who we are surrounded by on our campuses, that's where we make the most impact on a day-to-day basis. And so I think for, you know, students all over the country, you know, our priority coming into the fall is to engage those, it's to engage our peers. Um, And at the UC system, it's to start to learn and think about how to build our political power so that we can actually get these democratic divestment votes to turn into real meaningful change at a policy level for the UC system. And I also want to give a shout out to the work that National SJP is doing. Um, They've gone through a really amazing process of um, adopting representatives from all around the country and are getting ready to organize a really really powerful conference in the D.C. area uh, later this fall. Omar, anything else you want to say? Yeah, I I think... um, Definitely. Also, along with that, you know, what um, we're all, I think, in addition to thinking through, like, you know, ways to continue to um, sort of capitalize on not just the momentum of resolutions, but trying to follow through and make sure they're implemented, you know, I think, um, especially at this point in time, it's also important to think about, you know, different ways, um, many different levels of organizing that could be doing that's also not just directly through, you know, um, the student government or the governmental level, but also just more generally, like um, different forms of demonstrations, different forms of activism, um, still specifically connected to you know the the Palestinian struggle. So I'm thinking, for example, of you know students at UC Irvine or San Francisco State who are engaging in more direct actions, basically to call attention to you know the the brutality that the Palestinian people continue to face. And so I think that. You know, um, it's also important to continue to show support for and mobilize around, um, you know, Palestinian-led initiatives to uh, decry Israeli oppression in various forms. Um, and, and also to continue to think of ways in which, even as we talk about things like, you know, Palestine solidarity, how can we continue to center, you know, um, uh, Palestinians um, as the protagonists in their own narrative? And does that extend also to, you know, and does extend, I think, um, to Palestinians, not, you know, um, uh, within Palestine, um, also, um, you know, who are in exile for various reasons as well, and thinking through, you know, what that really means, you know, um, even as we think of Palestine, and in some time, in some senses, Palestine solidarity. How can we continue to sort of um, think of Palestinians as one of some of the main protagonists in in this issue? Um, which I think that, you know, um, as we move forward, is something that's you know continuing to be highlighted, along with the need to really center. Um, uh, Palestine as sort of a, an anti, in many ways, an anti-colonial struggle, right? So never, not really losing sight of that narrative, even as we continue to move forward with mobilizing on 
many of the other um, many of the other the resolutions that have been passed and the other basically great actions that have been done so far. All right. Well, there is always so much more to talk about, um, and we will, of course, continue to track uh, the movement of students across this country and around the world who are engaging in campaigns for Palestinian rights. Um, Omar Zaza and Rahim Kurwa, you're both grad students at UCLA and uh, members of Students for Justice in Palestine. And we'll put a link up on the electronicintifada.net to your essay on Jadalia about uh, the divestment campaign at UCLA and the campaigns moving forward. Thank you both so much for all that you do and for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you again. Thank you. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, Thank you for listening. Thank you.